Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. We're so grateful that you found us. The JCBC Podcast is a collection of sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. Right now, we're in a new series. It's called How to Be Human. We hope if you're in town or close by, you'll stop in and join us 11 o'clock Sunday mornings. Until then, subscribe and follow along. In September of 1942, Viktor Frankl, a well-known psychiatrist and and sociologist living in Vienna, was arrested by a Nazi uh, police. He and his entire family were taken to Auschwitz, the concentration camp, where over the next three years, everything that mattered to him at all was stripped away. They killed or destroyed everything that meant anything to him. They killed his family, including his pregnant wife, his parents. They even took his work, his magnificent writings, manuscripts, one of which his favorite he had sewn into the inner garment, inner lining of his jacket when he came to the camp. They stripped him down, removed even, as he says, not just killing my physical children, but killing my spiritual children. The work of his hands. They stripped him away and handed him a raggy, uh, raggedy torn set of clothes that had just been taken off of another prisoner who was exterminated, crucified, uh, ex- executed. He puts on this old set of clothes and he begins to wonder to himself, has my life meant anything at all? Of all that I've worked for, all I've pursued, and everything like that in a moment can be stripped away from me? Where is there any meaning at all in my life? He reaches inside the pocket of this now tattered, already worn prison uniform, and he, he finds a piece of paper that the previous prisoner had left, and on it is inscribed a prayer. The quintessential Hebrew prayer, the Shema And he reads it, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Ehud. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you know the rest of the prayer. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And in that moment, Viktor Frankl recognized that he can continue to grieve the things that he has lost and he can continue to grieve the fact that he can no longer find meaning in those things in words written on papers or he could begin living the meaning that God had given him and after the war and he was released or liberated from his prison camp. uh, Years later he set out and in the course of nine days wrote a best-selling book that has been a bestseller for decades, Man's Search for Meaning. And, And in that book he described the difference between those who died at the camp and those who survived to the end and he said there was one difference between those who made it all the way and those who did not. Those who made it had some sense of meaning, meaning for which to live. This is how he put it. 
He said, there is nothing in this world that would so effectively help one to survive even the worst conditions as the knowledge that there is a meaning in one's life. He who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. And I say that to you this morning at the beginning of a new series because I know that it is possible that someone has gathered here on this particular weekend and you've been searching for a sense of meaning for a long time and you don't know the why, you don't know the how, you don't know the who, you just know, you sense that something is missing and I'm saying to you, it is not an accident you chose to be here this morning. Because today we begin a new series in the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the most honest, transformational books in all of the Bible. It is raw, it is gritty, it tells the truth. It doesn't sound pretty, it doesn't read with flowery language, it gets down to the earthy part of this human journey, the frustration with looking for meaning and finding it nowhere. Ecclesiastes will guide us in our journey to find meaning in the only place possible. But as we start this, I'm gonna warn you today that we will have a great deal of scripture to read. Just buckle your seatbelts, just I hope you're okay with that. We're gonna have a lot of Bible today and it begins in Ecclesiastes. You can find your way there. Just go to the book of Psalms. After you find the book of Plasms there in the middle of your Bible, just keep heading east and, and after Proverbs, you'll find Ecclesiastes. Not hard to find Psalms, just open your Bible right in the middle and then make your way east a couple of books and you're at Ecclesiastes. But in order for us to talk about this amazing book, in order for us to somehow glean some truth about how to find real meaning in the only place it can be found, I've gotta set up a framework for us. That means today, I want us to talk a little bit about who, a little bit about what, and a little bit about why. We may throw in some, some wheres and wins in there too, but who, what, and why. Beginning with who. Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse one. The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. One of the things I want us to understand as we begin this process or this, uh, this study in the book of Ecclesiastes is the author of the book is not the same as the one who does all the talking in the book. The author is anonymous. We don't know the author of the book. We just know that at the very beginning, he says one thing and we just read it. At the very end, he says another thing in summary. And what he's attempting to do is to present to us the words, the musings, the, 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 the observations of who he calls the teacher. Now, in Hebrew, the name for this person who does all the talking in the middle of the book is Kohelet. Kohelet is a Hebrew word that literally means teacher or preacher. Now, you know that in the Old Testament, the Old Testament was written originally in Hebrew. So this word, which literally means teacher or preacher, later in the history of Israel, during the Hellenistic period, when the Greeks took over the world, the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, and we call that the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible. 
And in the Septuagint, when they were looking for the best words to describe Kohelet, the teacher, the best word that they could find is a Greek word, ekklesia. Now you may know that word because if you're a New Testament person, you know that ekklesia is the Greek word for church, but it literally means assembly or the gathering. Those who assemble together are the ekklesia. Kohelet is the one who gathered together or assembled together a group of people to talk about the meaning of life. So in the book of Ecclesia, Ecclesiastes, it is Kohelet, the gathering one, who has gathered them to explore some observations about where we find meaning and where we don't. There's something very powerful about that because that's what we're doing right now. There's nothing more powerful than people deliberately gathering or assembling with one another to seek out the meaning of why. So the first verse reads that way. I want to read it again. The words of the teacher, Kohelet, but it goes on. The son of David, king in Jerusalem. All right. Now this has led to two or three theories as to who Kohelet is. One option is the traditional reading, which is to say it's Solomon. It says the son of David, the King David had a son, Solomon. And it sounds like Solomon, the wisest king in all of Israel. Yet that's not the only way to interpret Kohelet. Some have said that the king who is in the line of David is a later king who comes long after David and is one of Israel's kings, but writes later in in time. And, And that's a valid option as well, like Jesus was born in the lineage of David. There are other kings that came after David, not just Solomon. But then there's a third option, which I find provocative, and it's widely held that there is Kohelet, another person late in time, who has kind of a Solomonic temperament, a person who writes in the style of Solomon, in the way of Solomon, but this person is speculated to have lived long after the exile. Now, why is that important as we begin this study on Ecclesiastes? Well, let me give you the entire history of everything in about three minutes. I want you to think for a moment about the book that we have and the Old Testament, everything from Genesis all the way through the wisdom literature, all the way through the prophets, everything that we have intact as it reads right now in your Bible, did not come into that form or shape in written form until after the exile. What do I mean by exile? Back when the events of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob took place, we know the history of this. It's told in the scriptures. They they grow a great kingdom, and we read in the early parts of the Old Testament about Israel being enslaved to Egypt, and we read there about Moses liberating them from Egypt through the Exodus, and we read all about their journey through the wilderness. We even read about the formation of the covenant people and the, the establishment of the law and the building of the tabernacle through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. We read in this history that we all know so well about the occupation of the promised land, moving in through Joshua and Judges and so on. We read about the kingdom uniting all the tribes and David leading a glorious kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. And then we read that in time they forget their way They neglect the poor, the outcast. They forget to care for the widow, the orphan, the resident alien. They begin to not belong or to not behave in a way that is reflective of the people of Yahweh. So God allows 
the Babylonians to attack and siege the city. And they send all of the leaders of the people into exile. They send the the leaders, the politicians, the artists, the musicians, the, the priests into Babylonian exile. Now, there had never been an event as cataclysmic as this event. In order for us to go where we're going, you have to understand the cataclysmic impact that exile had on the mindset, the psyche, the the theological orientation of the people who were sent into exile. The only event in their history that would come close to matching it was the Holocaust. I mean, if you and I want to understand the true impact of what it meant to have gone through exile, then we can take all of the sociological, theological trouble, tension that we feel by combining the attack on Pearl Harbor, the war years, 9-11, the pandemic, and you take all of the angst and trouble and fogginess and, and, and challenge of all those years, and now you're beginning to feel the impact on the mind of the Hebrew people, the Israelites. And I say that because if all of that scripture did not come into written form as we have it until after the exiles came home, well then they organized through the guidance of the spirit, obviously, they organized the telling of the story with the awareness of exile. So when they tell the story of, hey, as long as you obey, you'll be blessed, but in the day that you forget his ways, you will be cursed. They're saying this already aware of that's where it goes. So now they're telling the story in reverse, having already come through exile, and it has an impact on the way you tell the story, much like you and I do with the New Testament. The gospels that tell the story of Jesus are only told after the resurrection. That means years, decades after the resurrection, we put in written form the stories of Jesus, his childhood, his birth, his early ministry, but only after having gone through the resurrection. So you tell the story then, but with the awareness of what you've already gone through and it has an impact, are you with me, on how you interpret the story. So Kohelet, post-exilic Kohelet, Solomonic type Kohelet is now telling us a few things having gone through the exile and on the other side looking back sits down and assembles the people together in order to reflect a little bit on where to find meaning and where to not find meaning because after you go through a thing meaning changes. I knew some things when I was 18 years old and I thought I knew a lot more than I actually knew. But since 18, there have been experiences, troubles, toils, snares, scar tissue, that at 50, if I were to say what means something, if I were to say here are the ways that you seek meaning in life, it would sound very different than if you had asked me at 18. So post-exilic Kohelet is saying there are some places that we teach ourselves to seek meaning, but in the end, There's only one way, only one place to find it. So let's begin reading. What I want you to to read along with me is Ecclesiastes beginning in verse one and we're gonna read 14 verses, all right? It's almost lunchtime to somebody, I guess, all right. 
thank you, whoever is ringing. So Kohelet, you've been through a thing. Tell us where to find meaning. And he starts by saying, meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Why do people gain or what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. He's like, the sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and around it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. He sounds like a post-exilic 50-year-old man, midlife, with dark-rimmed glasses and crooked teeth. The eye never has enough seeing, nor the ear is full of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. I mean, is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was already there long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I mean, how many of your great-great-grandparents can you name first and last name and where they lived and what they did for a living? I mean, over the course of two or three generations, we fly forgotten. He says, I, the teacher, the king over Israel in Jerusalem, I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on humankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun and all of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. It's a real pick-me-up of a book. It sounds so skeptical. So cynical, so jaded, and yet so beautifully honest. And if you can't create space in the spiritual journey for raw, ungarnished honesty, then, then what's the point? But in order to understand this book is not just a downer, it's not just depressing, it's not, if you read it on the surface, it sounds so despairing. Everything's meaningless. But he's not saying everything is meaningless. He's saying that the way in which we pursue meaning is called into question. And there's a word that he uses here in order to appreciate the rest of our study through the rest of this book. Every time that word repeats, meaningless, or in some Bibles it may say vanity. The word in Hebrew is hevel. We talked about hevel a few weeks ago. Hevel is a word that literally means smoke, or vapor, it means that thing that you can see but you can't really lay a hold of it. It's, it's almost like, well, I can see the thing and it's so attractive. I mean, it draws my attention and it may be worth my pursuit but it's like trying to, trying to grab the smoke I mean, it's there. I saw it. Didn't you see it? I mean, it's, it's there. And, and if, if it's there, I should be able to reach it, hold on to it. So when I do, 
There's, there's nothing to it. And he's saying, I have explored laying a hold of so many different things to find meaning, to embrace, and yet after I laid a hold of every one of them, it slipped right through my hands and it was meaningless. Chevel, chevel, utterly meaningless. As we continue, he is talking to us about a word that we have to somehow be introduced to, uh, one that's not familiar with us. We can talk in terms of smoke, vapor, air, wind. But I love the work of Dale Harris, a Canadian pastor, who said to understand what Kohelet means when Kohelet says everything is meaningless, you have to understand what, it's kind of like what the 20th century French existentialists said about the word absurd, how they use the word absurd. And I know that we all read 20th century French existentialists for our bath time reading. But just one of them, for example, Camus, had this to say. The whole world itself is not reasonable. It's just not reasonable. That is all that can be said. But what is absurd is the confrontation of this irrational world and this wild longing for clarity that echoes in the human heart. In other words, what we know for certain is the world is not reasonable, it's irrational. Some things just don't stack up, they don't make sense, and yet what is really absurd is that while we know we live in a world that doesn't stack up, it doesn't make sense, it's it's enigma, it's, it's a riddle, what's absurd is that we still are born with this desire for it to make sense and this hunger for it to work out. And, and in the, the tension between the way things are and the way we wish they were, there is absurdity. And Kohelet says it's chevel. Some things don't make sense and you can pursue it and want to iron it out and want to embrace it as if this is the answer. And yet at the end, you see it doesn't stack up. It's his way of talking about the weirdness of this world about the strangeness, about how the world's truths just don't stack up to our desire for something more. And so Harris gives a few examples. He says, you wanna know what Chevel is? It's like, there's one guy who could, who could eat all the right foods, he exercises every day, takes care of himself, gets plenty of sleep, and then dies of a heart attack at 40. But his neighbor could... Yeah, well, he could smoke like a chimney, drink like a fish, eat all the wrong foods, and live well into his 90s. That doesn't make sense. That's chevel. Or as he said, it's like, you know, when you're in high school, why did all of the really nice girls date all the biggest jerks? All right? Chevel. What the chevel? Yeah. Or we have all these great time-saving gadgets that are meant to liberate us and give us freedom and, 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 and more rest in our lives, and yet the presence of them actually stresses us up more. It causes bigger problems. That's chevel. Or why is it that Laura and I are now empty nesters, and so we're only doing a little bit of laundry, but every time we do a load of laundry, somebody's sock goes missing somewhere. <laughs> These are the mysteries of life, right? It's chevel. Some things just don't make sense. And Kohelet is trying to be honest about the parts that don't make sense because until you recognize the parts that don't work, 
you can't get to the thing that actually does. Can we just be honest for, for just a moment about our own sense of chavel? I mean, we're living chavel right now in our country. I mean, the release of this news of the sex scandal or the, the cover-up over multiple years of many who have been victimized has really struck this pastor's heart in a, in a, a, a truly um, depressing way. And it's more than depressing, it's infuriating. The church is supposed to be the place where you're able to come. We call this room the sanctuary. It's where you ought to be able to come and be safe. It's the place where you ought to be able to come and the leaders who guide you, the Kohelets who gather us together, we are supposed to be they who seek transformation that we might leave this place looking and behaving more like Jesus and yet in the context of safety, some have, have been inflicted wounds, sexual abuse that have wounded them and it will be with them for the rest of their lives and that is chevel or the, school, the, the shooting that we talked about and prayed about a little while ago. The school is ought, to, ought to be a place where children are able to go safely and learn and have their imaginations provoked. And instead, whole communities will be forever impacted by the loss of lives of these children. In fact, one of the teachers who, who was killed, I learned yesterday, her husband died yesterday of a heart attack, leaving four children. That's chevel. How does that make sense? And yet the greatest chevel of all is here we are again. Here we are again. And, and of all the distinctives that make our nation great, there's one distinction that disturbs me to my core, that this doesn't happen in this way this frequently in other countries. And here we are again. And it will happen again. And yet we will then return to the muck of the quagmire of an impasse because we are unable to somehow do anything different that would prevent it. And we have folks stacked up on both sides of this chevel is, well, we should do these things. Yeah, but that really wouldn't work. We should do these other things. Yeah, well, that's naive. No, that would not work. And here we are just waiting until the next time chevel breaks loose. So Kehelet is saying there's some things and it doesn't make sense. And then he says, I sought meaning where I was so disappointed. In the rest of chapter two, he goes on to describe a few of those places. He said, I tried to find meaning in pleasure. I said to myself, it makes sense that to not deny myself any of the world's earthly pleasures would certainly bring meaning. I had everything you could possibly have. I grew in the accumulation of wealth and satisfaction, hedonism, I did everything and at the end of it, I was like, meh. Because I needed more and more and more and more in order to remain satisfied. He says, then I tried wisdom. I tried education, I tried learning, I tried to gain knowledge and at the end of the day, it occurred to me that if I'm wise or if I'm foolish, I'm gonna die either way. That the wise and the fool they also both die. They go down to the same place, he says. So what good is it for me to try to be wise? He said, and I tried to find it in my work. I majored in the right major at school. I found the right career. I chose the right vocational path. And at the end of the day, you know what I discovered, he says in chapter two? He says, 
I accumulate all this wealth. I got my family out of debt. We have this property, now this investment, and I'm ready to hand it on to my kids, but who knows if they'll screw it up. So what's it worth? It's all hevel. It's all vapor, smoke. So what do you do? Well, then he does something that he does frequently in the rest of the book. Just as he's saying, it's all chasing the wind, it's all chasing the wind, he follows it up here and there with an interesting word, a breaking in of light. For example, at the end of chapter two, he says, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment to the person who pleases him. God grants wisdom, knowledge, and happiness, but to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who will please God. This too is hevel. This too is like chasing the wind. What he's saying is that this is how the world has been designed, with tension and trouble. And why? so that you and I learn gradually to, to take our lives at, as it comes to us one day at a time from the hand of a loving God rather than live our life under the illusion that we are in control of any of it. And if we can gradually learn to relinquish our life to the one who has made life, well then that's wisdom because we'll realize I can't control it anyway So if I yield my life to the one who can, then my life will find meaning, and that's called wisdom. And then he goes back into, but everything is smoke, everything is vapor, everything is cavell. And then if you stop over around about chapter seven, he says these words. When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. It lets the rain fall on the just and the unjust. We're part of a bigger world than just my momentary observation. God has made both. And to live with a lightness of being, riding lightly in the saddle, lets you live unflappably with confidence. Kohelet is trying to teach us to trust God. So around about chapter nine, we hear these words. Go, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life. I love that. This life that God has given you under the sun all your havel-filled days. For this is your lot in life and and in your choilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might for in the realm of the dead where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. In other words, we're here for a short while and there's trouble in the world, there's chavel everywhere so you might as well live and enjoy the gift of life that God gives you. Because the God who holds the chavel in his hands also holds you. And at the very end of the book, as the writer is summarizing the words of Kohelet, he has these words to say. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. So spoiler alert. Fear God and keep his commandments 
For this is the duty of all humankind, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. In other words, there's coming a day when all shall be made right by God. In the meantime, relax. And God knows about Havel because God experienced it. There is no greater demonstration of Havel than the cross of Jesus. He came, the world came into being through him and yet the world knew him not. This world that he loved and came to redeem crucified him, nailed him to the tree. There could be nothing more illustrative of Havel than the God who loves the world being crucified by the world. And yet the resurrection of Jesus reminds us that at the end of the day, God has the final word and we'll hold all the chavel until it's ironed out in, in God's good and perfect timing. Is this why Jesus, when he's teaching, he says, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life. What, what you'll eat or, or drink or, or about your body, what you'll wear is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? See, the call of Kohelet is to recognize that this life will be filled with tension, unresolved questions, enigma, paradoxes, and yet, in the midst of it all, there is a God who grants life one day at a time. And as we learn to yield ourselves to the divine rhythms that are already in place, they were in place before you, they'll be in place after you. As we yield ourselves to that divine rhythm of God's love, we become free. And that's wisdom. 